The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present Savor 2014, an American craft beer and food experience from Washington, D.C. This recording was from Saturday, May 10th. Private Tasting Salon, celebrating 25 years in the craft brewing world, featuring John McDonald from Boulevard Brewing Company and Doug O'Dell from O'Dell Brewing Company. Okay, welcome to the 8 o'clock salon here at Saver. This is the salon for celebrating 25 years, wait a minute, I'm going to say that again, 25 years of craft brewing. That's incredible to think of when you consider the fact that like 15 years ago, a lot of us probably wouldn't even been thinking about craft beer or what that was. And so the fact that these gentlemen, who I will introduce shortly, were doing this and starting this trend 25 years ago is incredible. My name is Drew Larson. I'm with the Cicerone Certification Program. I am just going to be the, the uh, host of this salon tonight, which means I just sit over there and uh, look pretty. Because I came in, I said, do I pour beer? They said, no, you don't pour beer. I said, do I talk? They said, no, only to introduce. I said, so and that's where I think I was just being here to be pretty. All right, so anyways, this is the seventh year of Savor, which is incredible. It is a craft beer and food experience. And it's put on by the Brewers Association, which is a non-for-profit that really focuses and advocates for this small and independent craft brewer. We want to thank Spiegelau. Uh, I'm pointing over there because that's where all the glasses are that say Spiegelau, who made this room possible for us tonight. As we go through, if you want to shout out a question, go ahead and do so. But I'm going to pause to repeat it because we're being recorded tonight. And even though the acoustics in here are unbelievable, the mics don't actually pick it up. So if you want to raise your hand, you can raise your hand. I'll run over to you with the mic and you can talk. Or you just shoot out the question and I'll repeat it. So let me introduce, please, <laughs> Doug Odell from Odell Brewing and John McDonald of Boulevard. And I'm going to let him take it from here. Let me also point out, please, that the food is gonna be paired with specific beers. So if you'll hold out uh, until they pair it with that beer for you, then it'll all make sense when it comes together. Thanks. Is it on? Yes. Um, so one thing Drew said is um, feel free to ask questions because I, I know that John and I don't have an hour's worth of material here, so. I have a lot of questions. Okay, good. <laughs> anyway, thanks a lot for coming. It's, um, it has been kind of a wild ride, some ups and downs, but um, all in all, it's been a, lot, a great experience for, I'm sure, both of us. And, and uh, we all have some, uh, some stories about the difficulties in the early times and, and the thrills of the early times as well. When, I mean, just when one account that you were just really trying to get into said... Okay, we'll take your beer. I mean, that was a real thrill when you only had seven accounts. So, uh, uh, and things are different now, of course. And so we're going to talk about our progression through the, uh, through the ages. So, Doug, you want to talk about the first beer? Why don't you do that? Okay. Yeah, sure. Okay. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm not going to stop you from drinking. Uh, first beer here is um, Footprint. And... This beer, the concept is that um, we're, we are a regional brewery. That's how we define ourselves. And our region is the uh, Rocky Mountains and Western Plains states. That's why you don't see us in D.C. or Virginia or wherever you live. And uh, on, on one level, I'm sorry about that. But at the, on another level, um, uh, we like the simplicity of just kind of staying closer to home. And so the footprint kind of celebrates that concept that uh, we take an ingredient for, or two from each of our 11 state distribution area and put them all in a beer and brew it up and, and serve it in our distribution area. And so the footprint this year, we've done it once before. That year we, uh, uh, we, we were only in 10 states. This year we added Texas. And so if you look at the label, um, you can ask Drew to take a look at the bottle. But if you look at the label, it lists the ingredients that come from each state. And so, uh, you know, it's all kind of um, 
it's all the same from two years ago, except this time, since we're in Texas now, we added Texas uh, grapefruit juice. So this, this adds kind of a, uh, a citrus grapefruit quality that, you know, honestly, you can get from hops, but it's kind of coming from the real thing here. So it's just a combination of um, different ingredients that aren't necessarily typical brewing ingredients, or at least traditional brewing ingredients, none of which stands out all that much, but put them all together and you end up with a distinctive beer like this. And I always like, uh, if everybody's had a sip by now, uh, what's, what's one of the, what's one of the, what are some words that come to your mind as far as aroma or flavor that you first think of when? Cherry. Orangey. Orangey and ch uh, cherry. I know that um, we do have New Mexico green chilies in here, but I was pretty adamant about, uh, okay, let's use those, but not to the extent where it dominates the beer. So it adds a little liveliness to it, but I don't think that you would normally pick that out and say, oh, this is the chili beer, because that's not the intention. Orangey, yeah? Um, sure, I mean, citrus is citrus when it comes down to it, and, and so... Uh, uh, I'm glad you picked that up. I think citrus is becoming a, a, a really uh, kind of common flavor in IPA certainly, and pale ales, and, um, and also like triples and saisons. I mean, just from the yeast, you get a lot of orange and citrus character out of the saison yeast sometimes. And I think you're supposed to try the orange cheese. Yeah, the orange cheese, it's, uh, thank you, John. Yeah. It's, uh, it's called Color Rouge, and it's a uh, Camembert-style cheese from uh, Muco Cheese Company in Fort Collins, Colorado. So uh, just down the street from us, these guys make uh, great Camembert-type cheeses, and so we chose this one to, um, to pair with the beer. You know, I don't know about Doug, but when, you know, when I first started the brewery back in 89, and Doug by the way, Doug's brewery, they opened... The, he sold his first keg of beer the day after we did. So in 1989, we didn't know that then, but since then we've figured that out. And it was... I, I've never let him down for that. I mean, uh, <laughs> that'll never change. But, you know, in the early days, it was... I mean, we all accept craft beer today because you see a lot of it. In fact, it's, uh, it's almost everywhere. But back in 1989, uh, it was really hard to sell craft beer, in the, especially in the central Midwest. And I'm sure Doug has stories like this, but I can remember when I first started the brewery, uh, I was at an account and nobody was buying our beer. And there were a table of like four or five guys that came in after work and they were sitting there. And one guy, he orders, um, you know, a, a Miller Lite. And the next guy, everybody wants to, even then wanted to order something different. So one guy ordered Miller Lite, the other guy Bud Light, the other guy Bud, and then one guy wanted Coors. And then this one guy actually ordered our beer. And, and I was sitting right next to this table, and the rest of the guys were like, I can't believe you're going to order that crap. And I was like, oh, my God, this is horrible, you know. And, and the guy actually was so, uh, you know, put back that he didn't order it. You know, and I think today, you know, that would not happen, you know, so it's amazing how much it's changed. And I'm sure Doug's had those kinds of experiences, too, but it actually might happen um, in that uh, four of the five people at the at the table order a craft beer and somebody orders a Bud Light. And it's like, what? You're having a Bud Light? <laughs> yeah, 180 degree shift. Mm. Um, I remember our opening night. 1989, November, and uh, <clears throat> we had been kind of in a friendly uh, competition with a brew pub in Fort Collins called Coopersmith's that is still alive and well and functioning very well and makes great beer, great pizza as well. And um, we were seeing who was going to finish for, uh, open first, and, and we actually helped each other. I remember one, one day down in their basement uh, hauling up busted up concrete because they had to lower the floor and they came over and helped me frame my cooler in one year and so I mean in one month uh, then and so we were helping each other but uh, they opened first and 
I remember going to, the, to their opening, and the place is packed. It's just there's people lined up out the door and, and uh, just all this activity, and people are really enthusiastic about the beer. And then two weeks later, we have our opening at a uh, pretty nice uh, restaurant bar in Fort Collins, and, and it was really rather dismal. Not many people showed up, and, and I remember sitting there, hopefully, with my wife and my sister, my two main partners, uh, with a with a table full of T-shirts, and I think we sold about two or three of them, and and so I, I'm thinking, oh my God, did we make the wrong decision here, going with a, a production brewery instead of a brew pub? But uh, it soon kind of turned around, and and uh, and it, but it really, you know, probably with you, John, as well, it, it was a it was a grassroots operation where, you know, it was talking to one customer at a time. I mean, there was probably, I averaged three nights a week where I would go out, go to a bar that had our beer, and just sit down at the bar and buy somebody at the bar a beer and just start talking to them about um, why our beer was different than Bud Light or Coors. And uh, little by little, it, it, it happened. And um, I, I remember thinking the turning point came about five, six months after we opened. And uh, I started getting calls instead of having to go out to make sales calls, and I still was doing that. Um, but I, I started getting calls from, from bar owners saying, hey, my uh, competitor down the street's got your beer, and they seem to be doing pretty well with it, so I'd like to have it too. And, I mean, that was just a great feeling that, hey, we're starting to attract attention here. So the question was, what were the first beers that you both started producing in volume? Well, for me, for uh, Boulevard, our first beer was a uh, pale ale, a, um, you know, just a kind of regular pale ale, which is still one of the favorite. In fact, we'll have that tonight. I think both Doug and I, maybe it's our first beers that we made, will be the second beer we'll have tonight. But uh, we made, in the early days, we made a pale ale, then we made a porter, and then we made a wheat beer. And it was interesting, the wheat beer um, it was the third beer we made, and we, our distributors said that it had to be filtered. I wanted to make an unfiltered wheat beer. And uh, they all said, oh my gosh, you know, nobody's going to drink a beer that's hazy or cloudy, and you're, you know, you're for sure going to go out of business if you do that. And so we made a, a filtered wheat beer, and it really didn't sell well. Both our pale ale and the porter did pretty well. And so that's when we said, well, it's not doing well, let's just make it like we want. And now uh, unfiltered wheat beer is probably 45% of our brewery's uh, volume. I've been to Kansas City a couple times, and I know that wheat Yeah, it's a, it's a huge brand for us. So, so it really took off. But our pale ale is still a, a large part of our business also. You know, that's interesting. I haven't heard that from John about the uh, origin of his wheat beer. But I have, our story is almost exactly the same. 90 Shilling was uh, essentially our first beer. I mean, it was, we had another one out for two weeks before 90 Shilling, and we're having 90 Shilling tonight. Um, and the first one we called Golden Ale, it's long gone. Um, but uh, it wasn't long before I decided I wanted to put out a wheat beer. And so, like Boulevard, um, we thought that well, the, what I really wanted to do was a cloudy wheat, but I didn't think that people were ready for it, and so we did a, a filtered wheat beer. And, you know, it sold all right, not as well as 90 shilling. Um, and then after a while, you know, I said, all right, I'm just going to do an unfiltered wheat and, and hardly change the recipe, just stop filtering it. We called it Easy Street Wheat uh, because all of a sudden the... the, the the brewers and, and the guys running the, the brewing cellar was, um, had less work to do because they didn't have to filter it. So we called it Easy Street because it was uh, an easier beer to brew. And within, we had both out for a while, and within six months, all the Heartland wheat tap handles were gone, and every one of them had been changed over to Easy Street and probably had three times as many wheat beer handles as we had before we did this unfiltered. So. Um, I think each one of us would say that we, we started on, on, the, on the side of caution 
because we didn't know what people were willing to accept, you know, because uh, up till then, beer was beer. And so um, uh, after we felt a little confidence, we felt it was okay to branch out a little bit. And, you know, I think that, you know, branching out, that means an unfiltered wheat beer. <laughs> that seems kind of strange today, but uh, that's what it was. So, you know, I thought that was pretty interesting because that's something you guys got wrong, but at the same time was a happy wrong that you thought people would only want to drink the, the filtered, whereas I know in your hearts you wanted to make it unfiltered. What were some of the other, like, happy surprises that, like, big mistakes, like, we thought this is what the consumer wanted, we didn't want to do, and it turns out they really wanted what we wanted, you know, some of those big learning, learning points for you? Well, I mean, that was, that was a big one for us. I mean, you know, it's funny. Uh, one of the, I mean, in the, you know, in the early days, we didn't come out with so many beers as we do now. We're much more experimental, I think, both breweries. Um, one of the beers that I had an idea for, like in the early 90s, was a low alcohol. We made a beer called Ten Penny, and it was 2.7% alcohol. And it was because, you know, drunk driving was becoming a big deal. And, you know, I just thought it made sense to have a lower alcohol beer. And um, so we made this beer. It was 2.7% alcohol, which actually was illegal to sell in the state of Kansas, but we did anyway because we didn't know better. And uh, nobody ever caught us or said anything. Why was it illegal? Because Kansas uh, has crazy liquor laws like most states. Every state has crazy liquor laws. Okay. And um, so anyway, um, so this beer, it was great. Everybody liked it except, well, they said they liked it, but nobody drank it. You know, I always said uh, we finally discontinued it because uh, we just didn't sell any beer of the beer. But it was a great beer, but people quit drinking it then because it was low alcohol. And people equated craft beer with higher alcohol. And I, I think, I don't know about Doug, but... I really believe that's a new thing that's going to happen in the craft brewing space going forward is we've sort of gone to this uber high alcohol beers, which are great. I love them. But, you know, you can't drink. People that drink beer like to drink beer. I mean, that's part of beer is drinking a lot of beer. And I think that you just can't drink a lot of 7, 8, 9, 10, 11% beer, you know. I mean, the guy wonders why he never gets the girl at the end of the night. Well, it's because he's slobbering on his shoes and has to go home by himself, you know. And, uh, and I don't blame him, you know. That's not a pretty thing. Uh, you know, I want to tell uh, just a couple. So this is uh, our Long Strange Triple. And um, I think we picked this one to go with this cheese, which is from Green Dirt Farms, which is a local cheesemaker in Kansas City. And... Uh, on the label of this beer, if you look at it, that's not Jerry Garcia. That is, um, that is a guy named Trip Hogue, who was one of the first uh, employees at the brewery. He's still there, um, and uh, his name is Trip, and it's really that comes from being uh, something the third. And uh, Trip's kind of an icon at our brewery. Uh, he works kind of in maintenance, and he purchases uh, parts that we need. But everybody in Kansas City knows Trip. He's kind of, he's never cut his hair ever. He recently had cancer and he lost all his hair. But, you know, he, he was so proud of his hair for years. And everybody in Kansas City knows Trip because he sold more beer for us than most of our salesmen because when he goes out to get things for the brewery, he always gives people beer too. And so he's quite beloved actually and uh, even at the brewery, so he's been around forever. Uh, this is my wife, Ann, who's here tonight. And, uh, you know, one of our early stories was um, that we actually lived in our brewery. Um, uh, my father had bought this building in the 70s. And uh, it's funny because even before he bought the building, when I was in college in the early 70s in uh, the University of Kansas, one hot summer, I, I was in art school, and I, this friend of mine and I drove into Kansas City to get, get some silkscreen supplies for, for a silkscreen class, 
and we're driving down this street called Southwest Boulevard in Kansas City, and you know, it was a hot day, and the railroad yards were across the street, tumbleweeds were kind of blowing across, you know, the, the asphalt was oil canning, you know how it does when it gets really hot, and it was kind of miserable, and it was a really bad part of Kansas City, and I uh, turned to my friend and I said, you know, John, it's a good thing that we're going to college so we don't end up in a shithole like this. And you know, what's hysterical is then my dad bought that building, and then in the late 1970s, I came back from South America after a couple of years and had my cabinet shop in that building, built an apartment in the building. Ultimately, he sold his business. My wife and I lived in the building. My first son was born there in 1990. And, um, you know, a year after we started the brewery, and then, uh, then we finally, after a couple of years, uh, Ann said, we gotta get out of here, you know, because we had a lot of friends, as you can imagine, having, living in a brewery, you know, people were there all the time wanting to drink beer. But, you know, it was a great experience, those early days. I think Doug will agree that, we were talking the other night, and, you know, it's interesting, both of our companies have grown a lot, but when we think back over the past, I think, uh, you know, those early days were really exciting. You know, now I'm, Doug's got a lot of employees. We had 125 and, uh, you know, it's just a different, different thing. But, you know, it's amazing to me, I think the, just how craft brewing has, is really, to me, an exciting thing in America today. Not just because we've changed beer, but I think it's been a real, uh, spark plug for um, everything, you know, people seeing people make things and enjoying them and, you know, uh, revitalizing the economy. There's a great statistic in the, the BA has that even though craft beer is only seven or eight percent of the volume, we're 50 percent of the uh, workforce in the brewing industry. So we create a lot of jobs and we're very much a part of local. I think Doug, both uh, Odell's and Boulevard, our first and most important business is our local business, I think. And then we look at regional and now national, and for Boulevard, it's become international. So it's a interesting world today. But anyway, uh, this is a, uh, we have, one thing I wanna talk about this beer just a little bit, and I hope, you know, if you've had the cheese, uh, I haven't tried it yet, but, um, you know, I've always loved triples. Uh, when, before Ann and I started the brewery, we were in Paris, and I stumbled into a Belgian beer bar back in the early 80s, probably, and I went, oh my God, you know, this is an amazing beer, you know? And I tried all these Belgian beers, and I think when I started my brewery, I was thinking of that a little bit, and so, I've always had this interest in Belgian style beers. And uh, even though we, both our breweries were very English brewing heritage, which was sort of the popular thing at the time, I think back in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, and then some years later, I hired Stephen Powell as our head brewer. And uh, so we've had a Belgian brewer for 15 years at the brewery. So we're very much an American brewer, but we do it a little bit with the Belgian uh, sense. And uh, so Triple's always been one of my favorite beers. It's a nice, dry, very interesting beer. And uh, so this is our version in our Smokestack series of Triple. You guys like the cheese? Is it good? Yeah, nice and tasty. <laughs> good. Oh, my wife wants to say something. That there really wasn't the equipment that there is now, and so everybody had to improvise. And I and I think that when it, what these guys did was they kind of had to figure out the right scale for things because there were like there were brew pubs and then there were big breweries. And I know we went to like milk. Where they make milk tanks because milk is done you know, like Mueller, 
made our tanks for us, and our bottling line came from Germany, and it was like, it, it looked like prohibition because all the bottles were flying off the line, like smashing on the ground, and my father did a video of it, and I don't think they ever, ever watched it because it's, it's still not funny to them to this day to see all that beer go down the drain. So just the technical things that went on, I think they were really pioneers in that, and, and getting the scale to where it is now, where now you can do that, but there you, you were always having to improvise and finding somebody to help you to make a brewery that would fit your scale, because it just, it wasn't there yet. And it was interesting. And another thing, we, I think we had about four employees at the beginning, and John, he's an excellent cook. He's, he's a very creative man, and um, he, he would cook for them so that they wouldn't leave, because we were so afraid that we were working like, you know, 20-hour days that if they left, they would they wouldn't come back. So anyway, and we so we still have that tradition now. We serve the employees lunch every single Wednesday, and we've done that for years. So we have a company lunch every single week. I heard another question uh, asking where you guys are selling internationally. If internationally? You're yeah, if you're distributing uh, I don't think Tug is. We are. Uh, we sell beer in the Nordic countries, in uh, not Denmark, but in uh, uh, Sweden, particularly a little bit in Norway and Finland. Uh, we are in, oh, the, okay. in the UK, and it's not, I mean, I mentioned before that we're a regional brewery, and so uh, sometimes people come up to me and say, why can't I buy a beer in London but not in, in San Diego <laughs> or, or D.C.? Right, and I think that's a legitimate question. Um, it's because, uh, I mean, our roots, are, our inspiration was English-style ales, and I... Uh, I'm just kind of a student of British brewing history, and I've uh, gotten to uh, acquire a lot of friends over in the UK over the years uh, from numerous trips, and so it just it just kind of fits. Uh, you might call it a personal junket, I guess. It's not really part of what we do. Do, do you do any of the British beer festivals? Pardon me. Do you do any of the British beer festivals? Uh, the Great um, Great British Beer Festival in London. Uh, each uh, August, early in August. But, um, you know, John um, mentioned that we both started out doing English-style ales, and that's true because early on, craft, American craft brewers were inspired by the traditional brewing regions of the, of the world, and that was pretty much just three places. England for ales, Belgium for their unique styles of beer, and Germany for their wonderful lagers. And, and so when we, when we got started, it was pretty much uh, accepted fact that uh, the American brewing scene was the laughing stock of the world as far as, as, far as uh, flavor and, uh, and variety of beers. And I won't say quality because I think uh, uh, Coors and Miller and, and Budweiser make very high quality beers. They're just uh, they're light American lagers and they have limited flavor, very refreshing. They have their attributes, um, but we were trying to do something different, trying to stand out. And so uh, John and I both were initially inspired by um, English style ales, um, but then as time went on, uh, when John mentioned his uh, his desire to 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 brew more uh, of the uh, Belgian style based on, on his exposure in Paris. Um, and then some of the wonderful beers you can get in Germany. It's, it's uh, still kind of a playground of inspiration out there. But I can, I can safely say that 30 years ago when I say American brewing was the laughing stock of, of the world, I would say that we're the leaders uh, in world brewing now. So it's... Um, it's a great feeling to, to feel that we were a part of that, and so were you, because you accepted flavor and you, you, you looked for flavor and, and distinction in beers. And so among all of us, the producers and the consumers, we, we changed the perception of uh, American beer throughout the world. So it's quite an accomplishment. When you all started, what size of a system were you all start brewing on? Um, we had a 15 barrel and two vessel system, English style, 
uh, single temperature infusion mash, and uh, kettle was the whirlpool. And uh, after five years, we outgrew our location and moved to a new location where we bought a 50-barrel system. And then just last year, we outgrew that and, have, and now have uh, what I believe is the last brewing system I'm ever buying. And that is a 135-barrel, uh, uh, um, five-vessel brewing system. So uh, pretty up-to-date and modern. So we're ready for the future. So drink all the beer you want. <laughs> for us, uh, you know, I bought a, I had a consultant named Charlie McElvey that was, uh, you know, a German-trained brewer when I started. And uh, he had lived, his wife was German, and he had a lot of connections Germany in Germany. And I bought a pre-World War II 43-hectolitre, which is about 35-barrel brew house that we bought used it was uh i think i paid thirty three thousand dollars for it and um it had a copper kettle and then in 1951 they had converted it to what they call a stack system where they put the louder ton above the brew kettle and there's only a few of those the original red hook started it actually wasn't a really good idea but we ended up with one of these brew houses and um, we before we put our new Steinecker 150 barrel brew house in about eight years ago, we were on target to brew about 120,000 barrels on a 35 barrel brew house. So we did, if you do the math, we were doing 11 brews a day, seven days a week. And the only time we shut it down was uh, when it broke down. And then we would fix it, you know. If it just a minor breakdown, we'd just put some duct tape on it and keep going, but. Um, you know, it's a, and we still have that brew house, and we use it for yeast propagation and test brewing, because it's nice to have a smaller brew house. I think Doug probably has an experimental one too, because today, you know, craft brewers that are, um, you know, the consumer, everybody wants something different. You know, I think we as brewers would love it if people would just kind of go back to. I'm just going to drink two or three things, but I don't think that's going to happen in the near future. But uh, so it's something we have to do is keep providing new and interesting things. And one of the things that I think is interesting, you know, the reason uh, America is such a hotbed of brewing now is that, you know, we're Americans. The Europeans struggle with their history. Well, we don't have much history. Here, you know, and, and a lot of the history we have in brewing isn't so great. So uh, what's great about America is, you know, you can hire a, you can buy great German equipment, hire a Belgian brewmaster, and ultimately, or a, you know, whatever, you can do whatever you want. Nobody's telling you, you're kind of creating history. And so, um, you know, it's really a great place and time to be a brewer is in America. And unlike Europe, we have access to market through our distribution networks. Therefore, you know, it's just a, it's a fantastic thing that's happened to us is we have all these choices and we can be very experimental and we can do, nobody's telling us what we have to do. Now we do have to pay the government a hell of a lot of money, but besides that, it's a really creative uh, time to be a brewer in America. You know, I think you talk about history, and at the same time you're talking about American craft and how we're doing things very differently. But we do have a, a short period of history, and so we still do some incredible things that come from Europe. For example, 90 shilling or a Scottish ale, which is what we have in the glass now. Would you mind talking about the, the Scottish ale and why you're choosing this type of style and, and the food that you paired with it? Uh, sure. Um, yeah, the beer you've got in front of you now is the um, 90 shilling. And it was, uh, like I said, one of the very first beers that we put out. And uh, I remember I, I thought I was just going to brew it once, like for a winter warmer in uh, December of 1989, I decided, well, I'm going to put out a beer that's stronger and more malty and darker and see, maybe just once, see how that goes over. 
So the original version of 90 Shilling was like 6.3% alcohol. And it went over so well, but th this is a sign of the times. I remember thinking, oh, geez, if we start brewing this full time, I can't possibly have it 6.3%. That's really high. <laughs> so we dropped it down to 5.3 where it is, and it's been there ever since. Um, but uh, what's uh, our inspiration for this beer was essentially that when my wife and I, my wife Wynn, who's my business partner, and, and I've always been production, she's always been business finance, so proud to say she's our CEO and I am not, and that's, uh, that's really nice. And, um, but anyway, we took our honeymoon in uh, England and Scotland, and that's where I learned the system of naming beers after how much excise tax or duty the, uh, the brewers paid to the government. So the stronger the beer, the higher the excise tax. And so in Scotland, they named beers after how much tax they had to pay per unit, barrel, in, in that sense. And so I just kind of stole the 90 shilling name and, um, and put it on a beer that, that I've always described as being a cross between a, a true Scottish ale, which is very malty, rather sweet, sweet side, sometimes pretty roasty, and then an English pale ale, which is lighter in color, more hoppy, a little drier. And so it's got the attributes of both. It's got the kind of the dark color, roastiness, character, and maltiness of a Scottish ale. But at the same time, it's, uh, it's a little more hoppy than a Scottish ale and a little drier. So it's, uh, it's got the attributes of an English pale. And once again, just the inspiration from, um, from UK brewing styles. And so uh, this beer has, with the exception of about two years, been our best-selling beer for 25 years, <clears throat> and it still is today. Um, even today, when uh, when IPAs are so prevalent and people are so excited about sour beers and barrel-aged and high ABV and lots of hops, um, this beer, which is is rather rather tame by today's standards, it wasn't 25 years ago, and it's still our best-selling beer. And so that. That shows that there's still a, uh, a desire for uh, American craft beer drinkers to, to enjoy a variety of beers. And, what, and going back to what John was saying before, that you know, beer drinkers like to drink beer. And so this is one that it's kind of a departure from, from the higher ABV, ABV beers, uh, closer to you know, Budweiser or Coors. So what I get out of this is, um, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Just a general question about how you got started and how you, um, I guess, cracked the city you were in. If you were in a, you mentioned going out three days a week and trying to, uh, you know, talked about Coors and Bush and Miller, trying to get people to try your beers. And how do you get beyond that? What was your strategy to get beyond um people who are just used to the beers that they had, trying to get them to try something different. And Doug as well, like, how did you get beyond being in Kansas City or St. Louis and get beyond Bush or a Miller or a Coors? Um, what was, did you have a strategy or just go out one person at a time and then spread the word? Well, that was it, but the message was, what we're doing is different. And, um, that was, that was pretty much it. I mean, try our beer. It's not what you think beer is and see if you like it. And I can't tell you how many people over the years have said to me, I don't like beer, but I like this. And, and what they're saying is, uh, you know, they don't think much of uh, American light lager, but, oh, presented by the beer with flavor? Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, I, I think uh, the other thing that was going on at the same time in the craft, or when we started there was a really interesting dynamic in the American beer business. Big brewers didn't care about draft beer. Breweries, big breweries and wholesalers didn't make a lot of profit on draft beer. And we, I think, uh, probably collectively, figured out early on that retailers, bar owners, made more money selling draft beer than they did bottle beer because they didn't pay for the packaging costs. So 
you know, still today, you'll almost, I don't think you'll ever see a big brewery advertisement that's selling draft beer because they make more money selling bottled beer or packaged beer because they love the logo. You know, it's advertising for them in the bar. So they had created this thing where every American was going to drink beer out of a bottle at a bar and show off what they were drinking. And they competed that way. And so when we came, we just went in and said to the retailer, unless they were incredibly dense, they, which there were a lot of them, but um, you'd say, do you want to make more money? And they would say, yeah, well, put this beer on. And ultimately they would because a retailer, a retail on-premise person makes a lot more money selling draft beer. And frankly, it's a great thing. It's ecologically sound. I think draft beer in America is one of the most ecologically sound practices there is because, you know, we fill up a 15 and a half gallon stainless steel keg that lasts for 30 to 50 years if you take care of it. And it goes into a nice clean glass, hopefully, not a plastic glass. Um, they wash it and, and fill it again. And so it's a great thing. And I think that was how a lot of craft brewers of our generation build our business. We used to be 75% draft. I don't know about Doug, but um, so that was a huge thing to be able to sell draft beer that way. And it got people to try our beer also because they didn't have to buy a whole six pack. So they could buy one glass of beer in an on-premise account. And um, I don't, you know, today we, in our market, we sell about 35% um, of our total volume is in Kansas City. And, and we also probably, uh, we outsell all brands except Bud, Bud Light. So, you know, uh, so we, we sell a lot of beer in our local market, as I think Doug does in Colorado also. And then I think you asked the question of, you know, how do we go to the next levels? And I think really for us it was local first, regional second, and then moving, moving on. The same exactly for us. Um, I mean, we, we, John and I spoke uh, recently that... Um, you know, one of the things that we always concentrated on was establishing our home market first and the importance of Kansas City to uh, John and, and his brewery and Fort Collins in Colorado uh, to ours. Fort Collins doesn't uh, have as many people living uh, there as, as Kansas City, 150,000 people. Um, but it's about 15% of our sales and Colorado is about 65%. So... Uh, Home market is very important. Now, as far as what John was saying about draft, um, I mean, I wasn't that as smart as he was early on, <laughs> knowing that, hey, I can go to the retailer and say, or the, the bar owner and say, look at this. I mean, you may be paying $20 more for a keg for our beer than for uh, Coors Light, but with your 400, 500% markup, and that's really what they get. That's why draft beer costs a lot. We don't get all that, not much of it. Um, then you can make all these more dollars. I mean, that's that that came to me after a while, but that's what John is talking about. Why, you know, you, you you try and convince people why they should why they should carry your beer and what's your advantage. But um, somehow we we knew it um, inherently because we were draft only for six years. We never sold a bottle of beer for six years, so. Um, uh, but in, in, in our case, uh, draft beer was my favorite presentation for beer, and it still is. So that was our reasoning. I think we had another question over here. So uh, I think your wife had a really good point that, uh, you know, the lack of equipment early on was probably a huge hurdle. Um, and that's not the case anymore. I just wondered if you all had any insight as the veterans as to what you think some of the biggest hurdles that breweries that have emerged in this, like, you know, huge rush of uh, recent breweries that have been popping up, you know, what their biggest hurdles are over the last couple of years. Yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll start with that um, because I wanted to make a point, I thought of it earlier, that one of the uh, hardships of starting up when we did, and I'm, I'm sure you ran into this as well, John, uh, I'm going to give you an example. Um, there's a chemical called sodium hydroxide that is a very alkaline uh, chemical and, and breweries use it for cleaning. 
and in its purest form, uh, that's all it is. But for cleaning solutions, there's there's certain additives that make it more effective. But anyway, um, I mean, that's how you uh, that's that's the chemical we use to clean fermentation vessels to make sure that they're spotlessly clean and sanitized uh, so we can fill them again. But I remember trying to find some before we had opened. And I finally found some guy, uh, and remember that was before internet, and so I'm not sure how, how I was finding suppliers back then because they certainly weren't, weren't coming to us. Uh, and, um, and I remember saying, well, I'd like to get two bags, of 100 pounds of this sodium hydroxide. And, and they said, well, our minimum is a pallet. And I'm thinking, well, how much is a pallet? 40 bags. It's 40 bags, that's like, uh, I might be out of business before I use all that up. <laughs> so so uh, now it's completely different now in that uh, there are multitudes of businesses out there that cater to craft brewers. And so let anybody know that you're planning on opening a, a a craft brewery, and you'll get you'll get attention, and yep. people will find you to sell the stuff you need. So it's much easier now. Yeah, you know, to to Doug, what Doug just said. I mean, today, you know, I mean, people people used to call us when we were only in the beer business for a year or two, starting breweries at act, you know, trying to get. We want to start a brewery. Can you help us? And we were like. Are you kidding me? We don't even know what we're doing. You know, you, you want to hire us to help you? And, and, and so there's lots of people now. I mean, when I started my brewery in Kansas City, I had, um, we started our brewery on about $750,000. Um, I borrowed, or I uh, got investors and raised about $350,000. And then I had $100,000 of my own money. And... Uh, and then I tried to get a bank loan, and I couldn't even get a bank loan, and I was over 60% capitalized. So, you know, they were like, are you freaking crazy? You know, you're going to build a brewery and compete with Anheuser-Busch? Are you nuts? You know? And so today, you know, that's, there's a lot of money out there to start breweries. That's why there's 3,500 breweries in the United States. They're going to be. So, and I think, you know, one of the things I believe is that there's been one downturn in the craft in the craft space that Doug and I both saw back in the mid-95 to 2000, about a five-year period. Our brewery grew like crazy at that period, but the industry went to almost zero growth. And it was because there were too many breweries, a lot of bad beer, and a lot of bad beer. Be a, a typical business model then was if you couldn't sell beer in your backyard, you would ship it to another city or another state and ultimately um, one guy described it to me I thought it was great it was like all of a sudden all of the uh, <clears throat> it was like a giant uh, traffic jam at an intersection and the wreckers came and started just pulling the cars out of the, the intersection and that's kind of what happened in the coolers the beer coolers of America and um, and I think since then, we, there's a lot of great brewers, a lot of great knowledge. And, you know, for us, we looked at, I don't know about Doug, but, you know, I looked at Sierra Nevada and Anchor, you know, were two breweries already going that we said, wow, these guys are doing a good job and I love their beer. And, and so we sort of copied, you know, our brewery after that in, in some ways. I mean... You know, you always start, it's like being an artist, you know, nobody starts out as Rembrandt, you know. And so you say, but I like this and this appeals to me, so you go in that way. And I think what is interesting about that black time in the craft business in the late 90s, that's when Stone, um, Stone and Dogfish Head, for example, came out. And I think they came up with different models that worked. And I think... That's one of the things that I've seen as the industry's gone on is that there's always going to be room for new breweries, but don't just, you know, copy exactly what either Doug O'Dell did or Sierra Nevada. Ultimately, you have to find your own place and way. And there's a lot of new models now that are working 
really well for people. And so I think it's really evolving. And as long as I think American brewers are making really high quality, great beer, and that's your aim, not just to make a lot of money, I think there will be even new models that will be very successful going forward. Well, I think there's one of the problems when you try to get the business loan because your pitch was, I'm not trying to make money. That didn't work for them back then. So one of the things I think is interesting there is that you weren't trying to compete with Anheuser-Busch. You were doing something completely different. For example, this Pale Ale, our, our fourth beer, you know, this has this amazing kind of sun honey black tea to me. Can you tell us, because we're almost out of time, but we definitely want to hear about this beer with the pairing. Could you yeah. tell us a little bit about this, uh, this pale ale and the aromas and flavors we're getting? I will. Um, you know, um, this was my favorite style of beer when I started brewing. I was in love with, well, Anchor Steam, but um, Sierra Nevada, pale ale. And we made started making this beer and we've always we've always tried to improve it and um, you know when we first started we we made the beer and uh, it was good you know it's and I think that's one of the things uh, that we constantly try to do is continuous improvement with all of our beers it's never as good you know we never just say it's as good as it's going to get we always say we got to keep making it better and so we constantly funneled huge amounts of money back into not just making more beer, but making the beers we make better. And, um, you know, this beer is one of my favorites, and it's kind of my fallback. When I'm at the brewery and I don't know what I'm going to have, that's what I have. And uh, I love the style of beer. It's, um, you know, IPAs are so crazy now that um, I, and I like them, but... I can't drink a bunch of them, and I love pale ale. It's just a great style of beer. It's more balanced, and uh, we we bottle condition this beer. We've been a, we're a big bottle conditioner. We make a few beers that aren't bottle conditioned, but this one has been for a long time. Uh, we used to use whole hops and a hop strainer, but my new uh, when Stephen came, being a Belgian brewer, he's like, hell with that. We we're we don't, we don't need to use whole hops, but we still use whole hops for the aroma. He's um, allowed me to keep the whole hops in, in this beer just for the aroma hopping. So now the only uh, beer we make that has whole hops is our pale ale. And uh, I just think it's a fantastic drinkable beer. Hey, you had a question over the, back there and then you... I'm a transplanted Kansan, and this is one of my favorite beers. And I know you guys have great distribution, and I just wonder why this isn't distributed like the wheat beer and the other. I mean, my local place, Norm's Beer and Wine, has all you guys' beers, but this, is it just because there's so many PLLs out there? I think it's that. Yeah. You know, it's really hard. Uh, you, as, a, as a brewer, when you start looking at that, outside what we call the donut, which is our local regional market. You have to say, who's your competitors? And are you really gonna be able to sell beer in those markets? I agree, I, I, I think this beer is as good a pale ale as there is in the country, but you know, it just doesn't have the brand recognition in a lot of markets that, than it does in, in the Midwest. And I think, you know, as brewers, we just, we have to make those choices, you know, because the last thing you want to do is put beer on the shelf that isn't going to move. And I think that's uh, something that we have to have to listen to. Okay, I think this was a second, a two-part question. And then, unfortunately, we're running out of time. So let's get this last question in. And then hopefully they'll stick around and answer a couple of questions. And, uh, Drew, if it's possible, I want to leave with one little uh, anecdote. Could do the, could the uh, acquisition by Duvel possibly help? getting this to Northern Virginia? To where? To Northern Virginia. I hope so. I, I hope so. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, um, the question was, and you know, you know, Doug and I have been in this business for a long time. We just did a, I just sold our company actually to Duval uh, Mortgat, which is a 
a brewery that I've had great admiration for for many years out of Belgium. I think they make one of the most iconic, uh, well-known blonde, <clears throat> blonde ales in the world. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's a good thing for us. It, it's kind of, there are two things going on in the world now that I think are incredibly interesting. And that is that, one, people want something very local. And that is, you know, that's really exciting, like these cheeses and craft beer and all these things. And at the very same time, there's something that's totally the opposite, and that is, is that because of the internet and communication, the world's getting very small. And I really believe that I don't, I don't know the answers, I just know the question, that both those things are very interesting things and are going to very much affect our life and very much affect our life in the beer business. Because beer is a very local thing, but it's also we're working in this global arena now. And so when I decided to um, not worry about my brewery as much as I used to, I looked around for a great partner, and uh, Duval was my choice in that, as that partner. And I think, you know, they have more of a global, they're very local, they own four or five breweries, but they're all very local in nature but they have sort of a global presence that I hope will, I hope will help Boulevard grow in the right, in the right ways. So, yeah, that was, uh, you know, one of the reason that I, I did that. So, anyway. Yeah, I just wanted to leave you with um, one thought since uh, one of the prevailing themes uh, tonight was how, how did we differentiate ourselves? Why did we think that we could uh, enter into the beer business when the tradition was beer uh, breweries going out of business, and so um, the, uh, the one little story that I want to relate from Fort Collins, where where we got started, is that I hired a real estate agent to uh, find us a brewery or a location for our brewery, and a uh, little background before that. We were not the first brewery in Fort Collins, uh, or even the second. And I was at Bush, Budweiser, opened a brewery in Fort Collins in 1988. And we opened in 1989. And so um, when I hired this guy to find us a location, well, he did. And uh, I was happy with it. And it, got, it, got, it gave us our start. And I, I've stayed in touch with, the, with this real estate guy for, over the years. In fact, he helped us get our, our current uh, land that we have our brewery on now. And years later, he told me, you know, I got to tell you, um, you hired me to find a location for you, and I did. But I remember thinking, why do we need another brewery in Fort Collins? We already have one. <laughs> and uh, and that, was the, that was the thinking back then, is beer is beer. But it's clearly beer is not just beer. Thanks you know, for coming. I, yeah, I got one last. I got one last story. I got to tell you. Okay, this is my one of my favorite stories that I tell people. So when I was in the very early years of the of the brewery, there was a account in Kansas City called Twin City Tavern, and uh, it was a real blue collar tavern. And uh, the guy that owned it was a guy named Mike Renner, and he gave us a tap early on, even though most of his clientele were regular American beer drinkers. And uh, so every now and then I'd have to deliver a keg of beer to his establishment. And I always liked him because he always played, paid cash. And Missouri's a, Missouri's a term state, so it was nice to get the cash. And, uh, and about every two weeks, we'd sell one quarter barrel of beer. And it was always uh, horrible because when I'd go take the quarter barrel of beer to him, there'd be 20 empty uh, bush light kegs there, you know, or bush kegs. I don't know if they even had bush light then, probably. And um, so one day I went about 11 o'clock in the morning, and there were these three old guys that were sitting at the bar drinking their bush light, you know, no foam, uh, beer right to the top, you know, regular guys drinking their, and they were elderly guys. And so I go in and this Mike Renner says to these guys, he goes, look, you guys, you come here every day, you drink this bush light. 
He goes, here's this kid, started a brewery two blocks from here. It was more 10 blocks from here. And um, you should try his beer. I'm going to buy all three of you guys one of his beers. So I don't know if it was pale ale or wheat beer. It was one of the two. And so he pours him this beer, and it had a nice head on it. Looked great. And all two of them tried a little sip. One guy wouldn't even try the beer. It was too scary for him. And, um, and the other two guys then just kind of pushed the beer back across the bar. And I was like, oh, this is terrible. You know, I just felt so humiliated. And I thought, oh, I'm so, tr you know, I'm so screwed. You know, I'm going to go out of business. I won't be able to feed my wife and kids. You know, it's just, this is horrible. And uh, as I got ready to go out the door, one of the guys says to me, he goes, he turns to me and he goes, young man, that is absolutely the worst beer I've ever had in my life. And I was just devastated. I was devastated, but I can tell you what happened. All three of those guys are dead now. And you know what? We sell a lot of beer in Twin City Tavern. So, you know, if you can just kind of outlast them, things will work out okay. Well, I tell you what, when we first started, uh, John and Doug were afraid they weren't going to have an hour's worth of things to say, right? One of the things I love about craft beer is that when you get beer people together with beer people, the internet goes back into your pocket and the TVs come off the wall and you just start talking. And that's what we got. I want to actually announce too, and I do this at the very end so you're left hanging, these two fine gentlemen are going to be doing a collaboration soon. So we're all going to be looking forward to that. And thank you so much for your time and stories and history and what you've done for craft beer. Thank you for listening to this recording from Savor 2014, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Savor 2014, as well as all of the salons from previous years of Savor, at craftbeerradio.com slash savor or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com.